0: Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio.
1: And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, back with Sir Charles Schultz III. Sir Charles, let's talk a little bit about Mars. When do you think we'll be going back there as human beings?
0: That's a good question. Now, Elon Musk has a schedule that says he'd like to be there in uh, less than five years, which sounds ambitious, but if it's what he's doing, it could happen.
1: How long would an astronaut need for that trip? Going, staying, coming back.
0: Yeah, presently, if you're using the sort of orbit they've been using, you know, closest approach and matching the the flight path, it'd be between 7 and 10 months, depending on uh, what what time of year you go. Um, It's uh, the sort of thing that during that period of time, you get a significant dose of radiation, cosmic rays, It's felt that you get half of a lethal dose on the trip to Mars if you, you know, things weren't uh, sped up a little bit. So that's significant. You're probably not coming back if you go.
1: And I'm told that lengthy stays in space are now playing havoc with the astronaut's eyesight.
0: Well, that's true. One of the things that happens is it changes the fluid pressure in your body. You know, you and I are standing on the ground, and there's a difference in pressure from our head to our feet. And the body uses this to kind of regulate the amount of fluid it retains. When you're in microgravity, the fluid balance shifts so that's it's uniform over the entire body, and you excrete a lot of fluid to try and reach what it feels is the proper balance. And so this is one of the things that affects your eyesight.
1: Do you think, as Sir Charles, privatization will get to Mars quicker than Absolutely. NASA?
0: Absolutely. There's no way that NASA would have done it in this period of time. Um, Elon Musk has shown the initiative to develop new lifting systems, new rockets, His uh, system right now, the starship, could literally put 100 tons in Earth orbit right now.
1: That's huge.
0: That's huge. Yes, I mean, think of the things you could do with it. We could uh, have those orbital power stations deflecting the hurricanes, helping us uh, repair some of the damage to our environment. You know, there's a lot of things we could do with that sort of hardware.
1: When you wrote a fossil hunter's guide to Mars, what was the impetus for this? What what got you going?
0: Basically, to share some of the discoveries that I'd made back in uh, wow, 2004. Think about that, 17 years ago. Yeah. And you know, I feel a little more vindicated. You mentioned the news of the water found at the bottom of, or I should say, the ice found at the bottom of the canyon on Mars. Valles Marineris, as many people know, is the largest canyon on the planet and in the solar system, for that matter. And they used uh, what they call epithermal neutrons to scan, and they found hydrogen, well-bound hydrogen, and that means ice. So there are basically glaciers of water ice at the bottom of that canyon right now, and they think that it's one of the biggest finds they've made. It certainly would help people who are going there because... Hey, you know, you dig some dirt out of the ground, you hit ice, you distill it, and you have drinking water.
1: Do you think Mars at one time, Sir Charles, had a uh, abundant atmosphere?
0: Well, absolutely did. The fact that the planet is rust-red proves that. It takes oxygen and water to make that happen.
1: What happened to it?
0: It has very little gravity, only 38% of what we do on Earth, and its volcanic activity is very weak, so there's nothing to replenish the oceans and nothing to replenish the atmosphere. It was always a cruddy environment.
1: <laughs> well, we won't know unless we go, right?
0: Well, absolutely. And you know, of course, as you know, my only real concern is the potential for organisms that are probably still on the planet's surface now.
1: What could they be like?
0: Well, that's a great question. I imagine it have a different genetic code than we do, but anything can be infectious if you have no resistance to it, and we certainly don't have any resistance to an alien organism.
1: Might we be the Martians?
0: Well, in a sense, we are already because no spacecraft we sent was ever fully sterilized. The uh, spacecraft, such as the landers and rovers, all carry earthly bacteria. And NASA has been told that they're not allowed to operate in any area where there is significant chance of water being in existence because terrestrial bacteria are hardy enough that they could set up shop right in the soil and pose a threat to any Martian biosphere elements that exist today.
1: Are we truly concerned about that? Yeah,
0: there is enough of a concern that they've been told that they have to stop operation if they ever find evidence that there's water where they're operating. And we do know that uh, we've been carrying bacteria from Earth all over the solar system, and it could pose a real hazard to those places we're looking in our own system for other forms of life, such as the icy moons of Jupiter.
1: Let's talk a little bit about asteroids and asteroid protection. We seem to be hearing a lot more about that and efforts to divert asteroids than I can remember. What's going on? Something that they're not telling us?
0: Well, you know, uh, just over the last month, I know of 19 that uh, passed by the Earth. We had one just uh, yesterday that passed 130,000 miles from us, asteroid
1: 2021 XCC. And a lot of them, we don't know about it until it's already passed us.
0: And that's the problem. We haven't had the proper tools for spotting them. Uh, You know, back in uh, 2005, there was a NASA Authorization Act to locate and catalog all the near-Earth asteroids of about 140 meters or more. And they were uh, supposed to do it within 15 years and get 90% completion by that time. They really haven't. Um, They've found about 40% of those of that size so far. Now, there is another tool in the arsenal, and that's the James Webb Space Telescope. And that's supposed to be launched... Uh,
1: next, next week.
0: 24th, yes. They moved it out a week. They had a communication problem between the, uh, the ground station and the launch vehicle systems. Now, it's in French Guiana being launched there. Um, that's an interesting place. They have quite the launch facility there. The, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope... Will be able to spot just about every one of those 140 meter diameter asteroids. Here's the other thing. Um, as you know, SpaceX launched a mission called DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Right. That was launched on the 24th of November. That went up on Falcon 9, and its first target is an asteroid called Didymos, which is 780 meters across. They're not going to shoot Didymos, <laughs> but it has a tiny moon that's 160 meters across. So an asteroid with a moon and they know the characteristics of that moon's orbit very well. One half of the DART spacecraft will strike that moon, and we should be able to detect a change in the moon's orbit. And so that will tell us how effective it is as a means of deflecting an asteroid. So this is part one of a test to see if we actually can deflect an asteroid that's on a collision course
1: with the Earth. I would say deflecting is probably better than blowing it up, because then you're scattering all these chunks of rock
0: our way. Well, and that's exactly the problem. You see, if you have more shrapnel, it could actually do more damage. Um, One of the things that people aren't aware of is many of the asteroids are not solid chunks of rock. They're aggregates like gravel piles. And so one of the things we're going to learn is if this impact is going to significantly move the thing or if it's just going to dissipate the energy by moving the gravel
1: around. Weren't they also talking about moving it with like a laser beam or something like that?
0: Yeah, that's incredibly, it's an incredibly inefficient way to do it. Here's why. When you're making a laser beam, in most cases, you're only getting between 5% and 10% of your electrical power as laser light. So you're expending most of your energy just making the beam. I'd think a much smarter method would be an engine I designed back in 1989. You use a light sail, the big silver piece of uh, material that's a reflector, and you place it near the asteroid, and it, and it basically is locked to the asteroid by gravity. And you focus the sunlight on the back of the asteroid to produce a plume of plasma. And so just like an ant uh, hill being burned with a magnifying glass, you are vaporizing some of the asteroid with reflected concentrated sunlight. And that provides sort of a natural rocket engine that moves the asteroid gently off course over the period of weeks or months. And it'd be far more effective.
1: Charles, who owns the launch pad and the facilities at French Guiana?
0: Let's see. I think a number of agencies do. NASA has a um, a lease agreement for use of the facilities. I know uh-huh. that they don't uh, they don't own it directly,
1: but they got to have employees there and everything else too, right?
0: No, oh, absolutely. It's a whole space center. You know, um, it's uh, like like Leib- very active satellite.
1: Is it like the Cape? That kind of very thing?
0: Similar, very similar. Uh, I don't know the exact scale between the two, uh, but I do know that the French Guiana site is very significant, and it makes dozens of launches a year.
1: Now, why are they launching it there and not in Florida?
0: Well, there's a small advantage by being there. The closer you are to the equator, the less fuel it takes to achieve a stable orbit. Uh, really? You think about it. I didn't know Europe that. It's spinning at a certain rate, and if you're north of the equator, it's spinning more slowly. Well, you add a couple of hundred miles per hour to your vehicle for free just by being on the equator.
1: That's interesting. I didn't know that at all. Science does it again. (laughs) Yes, it seems to. (laughs) What's going on in the world of artificial intelligence, Charles? There's some
0: fascinating stuff going on. One of the most interesting things I saw was something called xenobots. These are living robots made from clusters of cells. These are little robots that literally can reproduce. They're uh, artificial life forms that act like robots, And they're made from cells extracted from the African clawed frog. Now, they have the ability right now to sweep up loose stem cells in their culture dish. They can begin programming the movements of these little bots, and they can actually heal some of the damage that occurs to them in their work. This is the first time they've taken cells from an organism and built a different organism using the cells like little Lego bricks. So that's pretty significant. Uh, They're looking at it possibly being used as a method of getting in the body with a program and hunting down and destroying, for instance, cancer cells. Uh, that's one of the things that's happened just recently. Another one, this is really cool. You know, they're trying to make AI systems to figure out problems, and one of the biggest problems that's been on the plate for a long time is the protein folding problem. And proteins are incredibly complicated molecules, and they do a job like a tool, but they have to be folded into a certain shape. Well, nobody could figure out, because of the huge complexity, just what shape the molecule would be, given the protein. Now they've managed to make an artificial intelligence system that has analyzed the problem and has cracked it at last. This is, uh, this is one of the biggest problems that's ever been solved with AI. And so for the first time, we can actually make predictions about how a designed protein will work, which just huge, huge implications for medication
1: That is fantastic work. So Charles Schultz III with us. We're going to take calls with him next hour here on Coast to Coast. What keeps getting this artificial intelligence so good? What's driving it?
0: The big thing is, in the beginning, we were looking for systems that could solve things like defense issues and stock market issues and financial issues. And we've come up with very simple ways to make complicated neural simulations called neural networks. Now, the computing method is so common and so simple, anybody can do it even at home. Well, the cost of computing has plunged over the last decade. So now we have very complicated neural systems that learn how to extract the features and make conclusions, and they're learning how to do these things. Uh, even engineers are building robots that now can open doors, figure out where the doorknob is, what the door looks like, and find a power outlet to charge itself. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing.
1: It's what do, you think, what do you think technology will be like 100 years from now, Charles?
0: That's something we can't even say because we're headed for the singularity, and that could happen in 20 years. Um, it'll be just like magic by then.
1: I mean, just to imagine, the way we have had astronauts on the moon back 50 years ago. 52, more, yeah. more, more than 50 years ago. 52 years ago. I mean, that's a half a century. Who, who would believe that?
0: Well, you know, you have to uh, understand that people a century ago didn't understand how quickly we were learning. Now it's just common knowledge that the amount of information being grown out of our experimenting and learning every year has doubled in a period of six months now.
1: You know, I look at my smartphone now, which is like a handheld computer. And, I mean, you can send text messages to somebody, you can send pictures to somebody, and they get it within seconds. That's correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable the kind of technology and emails fascinate me. I mean, you, you can literally send a document. I can send you a document through email, beams through the, uh, through the ether somewhere, gets to you, and it's there, and you print it up. It's incredible.
0: Well, and it's all, you know, the big problem was not the computing, but figuring out the rules to make it work properly and getting the network together. But, yeah, it's amazing stuff. Your, your cell phone has more processing power than all the computers in the world put together during the Apollo project.
1: I remember when fax machines first came out, and I had one. And uh, one of my assistants, I'd given her the fax, and I said, Hey, I need you to send this, here's the phone number, and fax this to them. Uh, you know, and she wasn't that familiar with the fax machines either, but she knew how to hit the buttons and stuff. And I said, "Uh, so, you know, take care of this. Okay, and she comes back about 15 minutes later, and I said, fax go through, do you have the receipt? She said, "Uh, uh, no, it didn't go through. And I said, what do you mean it didn't go through? I said, they needed it. And she said, it didn't go through. I said, show me that piece of paper, that receipt. And she said, well, it said it went through, but... it didn't go through. I said, how do you know it didn't go through? It says it went through. She says, I'm holding it in my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Of course.
0: (laughs) Well, pretty soon we'll be able to do the same thing, just as we have 3D printers and they can send you a blueprint. Pretty soon you'll be able to send a meal or a part or almost anything from one point to another. I mean, We're reaching the point where we can literally take the data that describes the structure and function of a thing and send it somewhere else and have it assembled for us there. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.